Hello and welcome to Talking Finance. I'm Alan Kohler and the ABC is the big story of the week, of course, including the political story. So let's turn to Bevan Shields, Federal Editor and Canberra Bureau Chief for the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, because those two papers have been leading the story, particularly with the break that uh, the chairman, Justin Milne, tried to get Emmer Alberici sacked. Anyway, we'll get him to dissect the saga and uh, also the transformation of the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, his image, and to wonder whether we're set for a big cash budget after the budget outcome for 2017-18 this week. Last night, of course, we had the Fed Reserve raise interest rates. So let's talk to Julia Lee, Equities Analyst at Bell Direct, to analyse the impact of that. And of course, bubbling away in the background is the trade war between America and China. So let's turn to Gerard Berg, Senior Economist International and a China Specialist at NAB, to see how the Chinese economy is going and whether the trade war is having an impact on it. And finally, Ben Grubb, freelance writer and former Fairfax Technology Editor, brings us up to date on the government's anti-encryption legislation. Members on my right will cease interjecting. The Leader of the House will cease interjecting. I'm joined now by Bevan Shields, who's the Federal Political Editor and uh, Canberra Bureau Chief for the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. Bevan, we've all been swamped by the ABC story this week, but is it a political story? Uh, I think it's more of a political story than anything else, really. It's uh, the story that has an amazing uh, intersection between a very um, well-funded public broadcaster, a broadcaster that's on hold, uh, loved by the Australian community and uh, the people who run it and the people who fund it. Uh, and uh, it's one of those stories for me that has one of those, uh, that has all the ingredients, um, really. And uh, uh, it's it's achieved what uh, something hasn't for a very long time, which is push pretty well all other um, political stories off the front page consistently for the last four or five days. Do you think there are political consequences for the? I, I think we've got we've got a, a departmental inquiry and a senate inquiry now into the thing. Um, I, I guess uh, my my view, my observation would be that um, so far uh, the prime minister and other ministers and so on have all been saying the right things. No one's kind of really uh, stepping on a landmine at this point, are they? That's right, and I think uh, I, th- I do think. There will always be the debate about who would who would protect the ABC and who will better fund the ABC. This does come against an interesting backdrop where the uh, New South Wales Liberal Party uh, conference voted to privatise the ABC. Now, that's never going to happen, but that, I think, planted a seed in the public's mind, a seed of doubt uh, about the coalition's commitment to the ABC. Now, as I say, they will never privatise it, but... Uh, it's an interesting, it's an interesting backdrop to all of this. Whether or not uh, this whole affair blows up in the government's face, I'm not convinced yet. So far, we haven't seen any evidence at all that Malcolm Turnbull or the communications minister or anyone else in the government asked for particular reporters to be sacked. All we know so far is uh, that the chair of the ABC was the one asking for particular reporters to be sacked. And, you know, I guess the government, my personal view is the government can complain as much as they like about reporters or um, about particular stories. Uh, good luck to them. Uh, 
most of the complaints would be baseless, uh, I would think, but the real issue is how those complaints are dealt with internally at the ABC, and that's where we've seen uh, the strife emerge. What, what you seem to be suggesting, though, Bevan, is that um, the whole scandal possibly plays more better for the, a, for the ALP than it does for the coalition. I think it. I think it does, but I think um, it, it probably depends uh, on how things develop from here. And this, Alan, this is a story that's moving very quickly as as we speak now. The communications minister is about to hold a press conference. If the government can uh, draw a line under this and uh, get it out of the way uh, and get a swift resolution, I think. Uh, people will move on relatively quickly if this drags out into a parliamentary inquiry um, that has the potential to be very damaging for everyone. Just moving along to other the other political stories, I guess the main the other main thing going on is the as uh, the transformation of uh, of Scott Morrison into an ordinary guy. And there was an arresting story by Sherry Markson in the Daily Telegraph or a feature sort of profile of him. Um, uh, how, how do you think it's all going? His um, his image transformation. It's. I think it's a work in progress. I did laugh at that piece that uh, the prime minister uh, made a point of noting. He's got a he's got a mortgage just like everyone else with a lot of zeros on it. But I I do wonder whether the public would go. Yes, but we're not we're not paid five hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year. Uh, so that may have been a there'll be little stumbles like that along the way. But I think. Is a very concerted effort to soften Morrison's image. What had worked for him in the past, the tough guy, uh, the tough guy on on boats, um, won't work for him now as prime minister. Um, he's got a very strong social media presence. He is not really interested in talking that much to newspapers or uh, or seven thirty on ABC. He's doing a lot of commercial media. He's uh, following the John Howard playbook of doing a lot of commercial radio. Um, and he's is clearly an attempt to, to introduce another side of Morrison that the public hasn't seen. Now, I think the public uh, is getting wiser and wiser around this. And uh, I think many would know what's going on. Um, uh, but I think Generally, people. My my personal view is that people have an open mind about about him, and they're prepared to listen to what he's got to say and listen to the other side of him that he wants to uh, present. But it's um, it's uh, as you would know well. It's fascinating the uh, the amount of uh, planning and strategizing that goes into these uh, image makeovers, and there'd be an army of people behind the scenes who are um, who are making it happen. Yeah, I was looking at it. I was looking, as it happens, at the uh, media section of his website, the Prime Minister's website, yesterday morning. The number of things he's doing each day is e- extraordinary. I, I had no idea. I mean, I, I don't, the thing is, I don't listen to commercial radio much, and but I, I looked at the, the list of things just on that day before was amazing. It is, and it's as a, as a journalist and editor, it's very hard to keep up because uh, you need to listen to everything. But he's. Um, He's absolutely on a blitz. And, you know, Malcolm Turnbull had, I think, a deliberate approach of trying to slow down uh, the cycle and speak less and, you know, speak less than when you have something substantial to say. But, you know, uh, communications for 
for Malcolm was clearly an issue for the party and that obviously that approach wasn't working and they've now moved to a sort of more frantic pace. Yeah, and the other thing that happened this week was the budget outcome for 2017-18. The uh, deficit of 10.1 billion was 19, more than $19 billion better than than that predicted in the 2017-18 budget. So uh, I'm thinking we're going to have a big cash plash election campaign. There'll be lots of giveaways, wouldn't you think? There, w- <laughs> there will be. It'll be uh, raining money, I think. Um, that's this is the key question, really. The budget is um, the budget is doing is is in relatively good shape. That's uh, helped more by surging company profits and employment rather than any particular. Uh, thing that the government's doing on the spending front of, in the budget. Um, but the real issue now is what are they going to do with all this money? Will they be, will they stick to their promise to offset uh, new spending commitments in an election campaign with savings? We're getting mixed signals around that, but um, uh, uh, it'll be an interesting tussle between whether they think uh, voters... Uh, will reward a party uh, that uh, is responsible on the budget and tackles the debt and deficit. We've done a lot of polling um, for the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age that shows uh, the public is very concerned about debt and deficit. Um, but at the same time, uh, they may voters may be more interested in um, what might be provided for their hip pocket and what the government might be spending on roads and rail and all those other sort of sexy things that can sometimes win votes. Of course they will, Bevan. Of course that's what the public's going to be interested <laughs> in. Of course. <laughs> of course. I live, I, live in, I live in hope that maybe some people <laughs> still uh, still care about uh, uh, deficit, but um, I, might be, I might be a bit naive. <laughs> <laughs> Great to talk, Bevan. Thanks. Thanks, Alan. Joining me now is Julia Lee, Equities Analyst at Bell Direct, talking after the close in New York, but before the open in Australia. Well, Julia, the Fed uh, raised interest rates last night as expected. Was there anything in the statement uh, that surprised the markets? Uh, I think the interest rate rate was expected, but it's the eighth time since 2015. The key was the statement, and um, if we have a look at the statement, we saw the removal of one sentence around accommodative policy. And I guess that's significant because if we have a look at uh, U.S. economic growth targets um, that the Fed's forecasting, we saw them rising their target from 2.8% to 3.1% for this year and from 2.4% to 2.5% next year. So the Fed is expecting to see strong economic growth come through. However, uh, the federal governor said he does not expect expect to uh, see inflation surprise to the upside. Of course, the other thing that we were watching were the dot plots and expectations remain pretty much unchanged for further US rate hikes of about 1% by the end of next year. And that was forecast by the Fed dot plot and the medium 
great expectations of the Fed governors. We have a look at the market reaction, though. We did see the market pulling back from the highs of the session. And in fact, by the end of the US session, we saw the US stock market ending towards the lows of the session. So it looks like the market unimpressed with the removal of that accommodative policy. And it looks like the Federal Reserve expecting to see stronger economic growth come through. And it's really no change in terms of uh, raising interest rates next year. Yeah, the market index w- was before the uh, the Fed statement, the market index was up and then afterwards it closed down a third of 1%. Yeah, I think there was uh, about a 200 point difference in terms of the Dow. So it was quite a big market reaction and ending near the lows of the session does tend to be a bearish signal going into the session tonight as well. So we'll need to watch to see whether we do see a backup and uh, the US session tonight is also a little bit weak, but certainly it looks like the market reaction was quite soft. And uh, the dollar, uh, the US dollar uh, sort of spiked downwards and then back up again. So um, a little change on currencies. Not much of a change in terms of currencies. And look, the US currency has just been moving sideways. And against the Aussie dollar, we're trading at about 72.6 US cents. So that's a gain of 0.1%. It is going to be quite interesting to see how markets around the region trade today. We have a look at the SPY futures. It is pointing to a down day in Australia, down by 0.3%. And if we have a look at how some of the commodities traded uh, we did see oil prices coming under a little bit of pressure in New York. We also saw copper prices slightly lower and gold and silver prices also coming under pressure. What, what do you think the next thing that markets are going to be focused on is, uh, is Julia? I think the big thing will be the midterm elections in November. We know that China has put off talks on trade probably until after those midterm elections. And it really does depend on whether Trump um, manages to consolidate power or whether we do see a shift in the power equation. And of course, President Trump has been the strong force behind a lot of the the trade tensions that we've seen around the globe. So early November, it's going to be a big one for the markets and uh, for the outlook in terms of global growth. And of course, it's important because the market at the moment is wondering whether we're able to keep up this increasing pace of growth for uh, the global economy or whether we do see an easing back of growth. Thanks, Julia. Great to talk. Thank you. Thanks. Joining me now is Jared Berg, who's the Senior Economist International at NAB, uh, and his specialty is China, which is what we're going to talk about. How, how much damage do you think the trade war with the US is going to cause the Chinese economy? Well, I mean, at this stage, it's still really hard to say. I mean, it all depends essentially on how China's government responds. And we've actually seen sort of three to four measures that they're certainly trying to fight um, the trade war at the moment. Um, we're seeing... Uh, they're trying to support their exporters by putting in some tax rebates. Um, we've seen a loose of monetary policy to try and just boost the economy more generally. Um, you could argue that uh, they've depreciated the yuan a bit to help exporters as well. Um, certainly they've suggested that isn't the case. Um, but the one that's happened more recently is that they've um, loosened some of the restrictions on infrastructure investment. And that's kind of going back to the well uh, when it comes to the, the older style of stimulus that they've implemented in the past. That's interesting, isn't it? Because as you've pointed out, um, it it suggests that they don't think 
the consumers are ready, Chinese consumers are ready to step up in a way that they've had to go back to their old uh, their old ways of stimulating infrastructure investment rather than consumption. Yeah, that's right. I mean, that's how they sort of fought off the GST, and they also did the same thing in 2012 when there was a, a soft patch for the economy. Um, you know, we hear a lot about uh, how China's economy is is changing, and it is changing more towards domestic consumption, but it's a really slow um, transition. Um, last year, you know, Chinese uh, private consumption was only about 39% of GDP, um, and yeah, that's compared to about to over 60% in most advanced economies. So there's still a long way to go before consumers are really uh, kind of ready to, to support the economy. And one of the reasons is that they simply save too much. Um, so, you know, national savings in China just a couple of years ago, um, it was over 50% of GDP. It's eased back to about 46% last year, but that's still incredibly high worldwide. Uh, the average is about, about a quarter of, uh, of GDP. So it's it's still a huge factor there. It's interesting, isn't it? I suppose it's the uh, it's a demonstration of the paradox of thrift, where it's great if if one person saves, but if the whole country saves, it's not great. Yeah, and there's a lot of structural things within China's economy that, that encourage people to save. Um, you know, we've we highlighted a few uh, factors that sort of have, have influenced this, and you know, we've talked in the past a lot about um, the high level of income and wealth inequality. That's one one factor that sort of contributes to it. Um, wages growth more recently has slowed quite considerably, and that sort of encourages uh, people to hold back a little bit. Um, we've also seen household debt really on the rise. Um, you know, property prices in China have been going through the roof. People have to save a lot to get a deposit, and um, you know, once they're once they're repaying a very large mortgage, obviously that that constrains their consumption a bit. Um, but perhaps the the really big factors we see are kind of the the impact of the one child policy, which means that you know there's fewer people to support you in retirement. And um, the breakdown of the sort of social security system in the, in the 90s, which has never really fully recovered, um, and some of the factors that are really sort of supporting uh, that, that high level of savings. So essentially, it's about um, supporting yourself, both in the case of unemployment or in the case of your retirement, uh, because the government kind of isn't there to support you um, longer term. And I suppose that's why it's going to take so long to change that. These are these are big structural issues that um, can't be shifted overnight. Yeah, and there's been some sort of talk of a, a widespread um, social safety net being introduced uh, for some time, but it's been something that's been a, a really slow um, path to, to reform and, and progress, but it's perhaps something that they really need to intensify. And perhaps, you know, the, the need to try and boost consumption um, longer term, uh, that this might be one of the policy changes that actually occurs, um, you know, in response to this, this trade dispute with the US. Well, just on the trade dispute and back to where we started the interview, I mean, uh, how worried do you think Australian investors, particularly those who are uh, in resources stocks, should be about uh, about the impact of the trade war on the Chinese economy? Well, every time we try and look at the impact for Australia, we're, we're kind of left, you know, that, that classic kind of economist response of, you know, on one hand, um, you know, we sort of think that uh, there's, there's some risk but there's also the potential for some benefits, and we're still not 100% sure you know, where Australia sits, um, particularly given the, uh, the likelihood of this uh, you know, increased infrastructure spending. Um, it may increase demand for things like steel, um, flying through into demand for our iron ore and, and coal exports. So there's a potential benefit for that. Um, what we tend to see is that the bulk of our resources exports are consumed 
uh, domestically within China. So we don't think there's a big flow-through effect from um, from the impact of the tariffs. But in saying that, you know, overall we expect the economy to be a little bit weaker, and that could flow through into um, weaker national income and therefore demand for some of our other exports, particularly things like education and tourism. So there's there's some pain points there, but I don't think um, resources are necessarily going to be one that suffers too much. That's great to know, Jared. Thank you very much. No problem. We're happy to talk. Now let's talk to Ben Grubb, former Fairfax tech editor and now freelance, about the great saga of the spyware on our phones. Well, Ben, last time we spoke in August, we talked about the government's uh, desire to set up a backdoor to um, uh, to uh, phones and so on. Uh, you called uh, they, you said that they were trying to make it sound like a side door, but it actually is a backdoor um, to get around encryption. So they've actually gone ahead and drafted the legislation, and um, apparently they had fifteen thousand uh, comments uh, to uh, in the consultation. Yes. Fifteen thousand. That's right, Alan. Now it would be important to note that fourteen thousand or so of them were form letters that were set up by a group called Digital Rights Watch. Um, so a significant number were, you know, petition-style submissions. Um, from privacy advocates, people who are quite interested in ensuring that um, privacy you know, stays intact, um, but still a number of technology companies, uh, you know, the, the, the Googles and the Facebooks and Twitters of the world, uh, remain worried. Um, uh, the legislation was put out for draft when we were last speaking, uh, and then uh, they received all of those uh, submissions, uh, and then uh, the government decided to... Um, I think it was about seven or ten days after uh, submission closed on that consultation, they put the legislation into Parliament. Um, so lots of people kind of upset uh, that uh, they seem to be, uh, you know, rushing it through. Um, but it's going through an, yet another um, consultation process uh, in the Parliament and the House of Representatives, uh, where it'll again undergo some scrutiny. Um, the, the tech giants still say that it will undermine encryption as we know it um, and that by putting in a vulnerability for, let's say, the good guys, i.e. law enforcement and our spy agencies, um, it means that it, w- it won't stop the bad guys from finding those, um, those vulnerabilities. The government, meanwhile, says that you know, it's not introducing vulnerabilities, nothing to worry, uh, everything's A-OK, um, but uh, you really can, I guess, sympathise with the government, they, they, their law enforcement agencies are telling them we, you know, in in a number of cases now, uh, the high priority, you know, kind of ASIO cases, they're just simply unable to access the contents of communications, those messages that maybe terrorists and, and pedophiles are exchanging with each other, um, and um, they just they say we need to have a way that uh, works for all, um, and uh, that's kind of where we're at at the moment. Lots of angry tech giants. Uh, and uh, a government that has its law enforcement saying we need, we're knocking on the door, we need these changes. What was good to see, however, um, from the consultation process was they have decided, the government that is, to remove uh, a requirement that would require the tech giants to um, remove security protections in the case of protecting the public revenue. So tax evaders, uh, you're off the hook. You can still talk uh, in an encrypted means. Uh, that was just one of 
maybe two or three changes uh, that they made. There's still no judicial oversight. Um, so uh, a judge, while a search warrant would have to be, you'd have to get one of them um, potentially to gain access to the um, the messages. Uh, there's still no independent judicial oversight to, you know, talk about to I guess judge whether um, whether what is being asked of a tech giant to remove those security protections is whether it's proportional, you know, whether it's uh, you know warranted. Ben, just because something makes the tech giants angry doesn't make it bad. Yeah, no, that's right, Alan. Um, you know, I think most people, uh, most reasonable people would say that if uh, a law enforcement agency uh, goes uh, and asks the judge for access to communications, uh, whether in they're encrypted or not, I think they'd expect them to be able to protect them and to gain access. And I do think that there is going to have to be a compromise. What that compromise is, though, is what they're arguing against. They're, they're, I guess the... The, the valid fear here is that by creating weaknesses uh, in products won't stop the bad guys from also exploiting those weaknesses. So how do you do it in a way um, that ensures that, you know, everyone is happy um, or, you know, slightly happier than they are now because uh, there is a threat, the tech giants say, that by doing what they're being asked to do will create systemic weaknesses. And if you look at the legislation versus the explanatory memorandum um, that explains the legislation, it says, you know, the explanatory memorandum um, says one thing, um, and, but it's not followed through in the legislation um, because you know, for various reasons, um, you know, they say it would, um, you know, allow for the bad actors to exploit it. Um, and, and that's not good, they say. Ben, you've been kicking around technology for a long time. Do you think there's some way for, for a middle ground to be reached here for the, for the law enforcement agencies to get what they need, which is obviously access to encrypted um, data and uh, conversations, uh, while at the same time protecting us? Or is it simply uh, an on or off button? Either it's open or it's not open. I think that either, yeah, I think it is on or off. Uh, you, can't, you can't give one key to, it's like the TSA key, right? Um, even though they argue that it's not a key here, it's just like, you know, as I describe a side door, uh, they don't like the, the term backdoor perhaps because it's got negative connotations uh, that come with it. But if you if you weaken a product or if you um, provide a, a, a TSA-style key that like people have when they go to America, you have to have a TSA lock and then only the TSA has the key. But what ended up happening was that, you know, TSA agents would take a photo of that key or they'd lose the key and that key would end up, you know, on eBay for anyone to purchase, and now anyone can get into uh, those suitcases um, very simply. And it's it's just kind of you know undermines the, the security of the suitcase. Uh, and it'd be the same case here. You you weaken it, uh, or you provide like another key that only the good people can access. There's going to be there bad guys are always going to find a way to make to exploit that. So I guess the question becomes for Australians. Um, what do we think? Do we think that this is one for the greater good? Uh, and and two, do we think that um, this deserves, like we, we need to go down this path? Um, will more people die or less people die? I think we should probably come down to that point. Um, you know, we don't have a lot of um, terrorist activity in Australia. Um, in You know, it, so if we introduce something like this, um, and, and people's privacy is eroded, is it worth it? And I, I do tend to look back in history because we learn 
lessons from history. And um, perhaps it's an extreme, but uh, in Nazi Germany, um, you know, they used the census data where they collected everyone's religion against the people. So people voluntarily said, oh, I am Christian, I am Jewish, and they gave that to the government and hoping that they would use that data in a good way. But they turned that around uh, and they gathered up all the Jewish people and then killed them, murdered them. So, I mean, that's that's an example, an extreme example, where um, people's privacy um, was eroded and then turned against them. And we have to think about examples like that where if we go down this path, it w- would actually be for for good. You know, governments change over time. Um, once you start doing something like this, it's very hard to um, go, oh, wait, we, we're not going to do this anymore. Um, so, yeah, I, I, it is very much an on-off switch. And it's an interesting path that we're going down and we are seeming to be, we seem to be leading the world. Uh, everyone is looking at us, especially in the five eyes um, circles as to where we go with this um, next. But it does seem to be that the bill has been the government has decided to go down this path it's ignored the consultation and it's um uh, introduced a bill more or less unchanged yes uh and I, I was kind of predicting that they would make the changes that they have um because it, it would seem silly to <laughs> chase tax evaders um i mean this should be just for the most serious of crimes um the the crimes where you know there is going to be life or death um, and they, and I think it would be re- most people would expect there to be judicial oversight. Um, they would expect for there to be tra- more transparency, reporting mechanisms. Um, at the moment, you know, you can just self-authorize. An officer could just, in a number of instances, uh, they could just go, okay, well, we we need this, we need to do that, and then they can go to a tech company, knock on the door, and say, unless you do this, you're going to be fined this amount every day until you actually do it. Um, and it, it, the types of things that they could um, be asked to do. Some people were even saying um, that, that this is like the telecommunications industry would be representing the Telstra and the Vodafone and even the handset manufacturers. They're saying that they could potentially see um, spyware preloaded on people's smartphones before they even buy it. Um, so I, the, 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 there's a there's potential here for the scope creep, um, and I think the government just needs to perhaps slow down a little bit, listen to those concerns and then try to find what is somewhat of a middle ground. Good on you, Ben. Thanks. Thank you, Alan. And goodness me, Olivia Newton-John turned 70 yesterday. Goodness gracious me. Here she is with John Travolta singing You're the One That I Want from Greece. What a great song. That's all from me. Have a great week.